welcome to the Painter's Dialectic. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today, Dylan and I are going to be doing the third dialogue of the What is Truth series, which casually and conversationally explores epistemology. The focus of this episode is exploring the philosopher Daniel Dennett's idea of real patterns. The questions we'll be asking today, is knowledge real? Are ideas real? Are beliefs real? Are these abstract entities real? So that's what we'll be exploring today. And remember, don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Go to our Patreon page and subscribe. We have different tiers with behind the scenes content of how we develop these ideas. You can also support us on Spotify now. This will help us to continue making this meaningful content. If you'd like to study art with me, you can go to greenatelier.art and sign up for lessons. If you'd like to check out our Instagram page, it's the Painter's Dialectic. My Instagram page is Josh Green Artist. And if you'd like to see what I'm up to, you can go to joshgreenart.com. Dylan, where where on the planet are you today? I've sort of gone back all the way to Hong Kong to Asia in a different, <laughs> completely different time zone. Yeah, you got me up early in the morning today. Yeah. Hopefully, I can do philosophy. <laughs> this early, early morning philosophy. <laughs> all day long, twenty four seven. Let's do it. Mm. How how is it over there? Good. It's significantly warmer. Yeah. I would. Uh, and much more humid than I would like, but yeah. <laughs> that Asian humidity. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, today I want to talk to you about one of my favorite papers by Daniel Dennett. I love all of his writing. This one's called, um, what is it called? <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit this out. <laughs> it's called Real Patterns real patterns since you know we're on epistemology it's kind of fun to think is knowledge real or beliefs real i don't know maybe it kind of seems like a dumb question to me yeah of course it's real but what is the ontology of beliefs or, or knowledge you know mm-hmm. how real are they and he kind of puts forth the idea is there a semi-realism you know right. how hard line does realism need to be Mm-hmm. But his introduction here is like, are they really beliefs? Or are right. we learning from neuroscience and psychology? Presumably that, strictly speaking, beliefs are fragments of our imagination, items mm-hmm. in a superseded ontology. You know, and he, he goes on to argue that, are centers of gravity real? Right. Technically, they're just a physical idea, but they're definitely real. Like, we orbit around the sun, the the moon orbits around us we're stuck to the planet even our bodies have a center of gravity but if we tried to locate it we couldn't really do that but Mm -hmm. it's real you know so in the last episodes we got stuck on perception and in the one on dream yoga we talked about either you know the two sides of the coin either you're a physicalist and you believe that consciousness is an epiphenomenon rising out of that or you believe that consciousness is fundamental and physicalism arises out of out of it. 
you know, but what is the reality of, of emotions, of Santa Claus, of, of centers <laughs> of gravity, these, these abstract objects and their right. dynamic relationship with, with concrete objects, you know? Mm-hmm. Then it says, where utter patternlessness or randomness prevails, nothing is predictable there, okay? The success of folk psychology, which is, a, which is a nice term to know, that's kind of like the ideas of the innate philosophy of the general people. The success of folk psychological prediction, like the success of any prediction, depends on there being some order or pattern in the world to exploit. Exactly where in the world does this pattern exist, and what is the pattern of a pattern? Right. Right? For us to be able to make predictions about reality and to conceptualize it, there must be some real patterns in nature for us to exploit. If reality just was patternless noise, then nothing would be predictable. But articulating what exactly a real pattern is, or what knowledge is, or what belief is composed of, or even whether they can be considered real, you know, is a, a heated debate. It's a fun cycle for philosophers to run around through, but... For real patterns, there has to exist some dynamic relationship between these concrete objects and concrete reality um, that we can exploit, right? Data is real. I get data as sensation, and I extract information from it. Then it says a pattern exists in some data, and it's real. If there is a description of the data that is more efficient than just the entire data set, so like my entire visual field, if I have a more efficient way of looking at it, that is a real pattern. Mm -hmm. The information then, pattern then, is just a more efficient way to process reality, more efficient way to process all this data, a shortcut. And so that is the reality. If there is a more efficient way of describing reality, of processing it, then that thing is real. Maybe not physically real, it has a semi-realism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's the main idea, and I want to get your, your thoughts on that. How, how much of a realist are you about these epistemology? Yeah, I think it might be helpful sort of to recap a little bit about the sort of questions we've been asking so far. So when we were yeah. looking at if you'd like the origins of asking the question of knowledge of doing epistemology, the ancient Greeks were fundamentally asking, how do we know the things we know? Right. Right. So, you know, you have Plato's allegory of the cave, you have the shadows on the wall. Then sort of across time, the question changes to something more modern in the sense of, okay, right? We can't possibly answer that question if we don't know in the first place what knowledge is. Right. Right. In order to answer the question, how do we know? We must have to answer the question, what is knowledge? And of course, what this new question that Dennett is proposing is even even further extension of that, is that, okay, if we are to answer what is knowledge, we have to un- try to make sense of whether this question is even worth asking in the first place. Does this question have any meaning? That is basically saying, right, is knowledge real? Is there anything as knowledge to define, if we're going to define knowledge? Or more specifically, his answer to that question is more precise in the sense of, 
does knowledge or is knowledge meant to reflect some sort of feature about what we term as reality. So already reality here is a very loaded term because it sort of reminds me of Matrix, right? Morpheus goes, you know, says, what is real? <laughs> if you mean by the signals that you receive through your senses, they don't necessarily have to reflect reality in the way that you think it is. But that's not what Dennett is asking, right? He's proposing that even if, right, that Descartes is right, that Morpheus is right, that everything that we receive through our senses is some form of distortion, right? The fact that there are some patterns to that distortion tells us something fundamentally real about how things are actually the case, not just how we interpret the case. So when we're looking at subjectivity and perception, we're running under the assumption that, okay, it seems like if everything is interpreted and subjective, there's no way that any of this sensory information reflects reality in any way as it actually is, only how we perceive it to be. So it's a little bit like going back to Plato's cave and then seeing that a particular shadow, let's say I see a particular shadow of a, of a rather sort of large individual walking by and I see his shadow. And he comes by every Tuesday, let's say. Even though the shadow is a reflection of a, of a type of falsehood, I can discern from that a genuinely real pattern, is that this individual comes by every Tuesday. That is a real fact about the habits of a real individual. So it seems that that proposal is quite promising even for scientific senses. I think his more precise sort of definition is that real patterns are those that you can simplify into a simpler model, a scientific model. So you have all of this data, all of this sort of information out there. Can I distill that information into a simple scientific model that explains the complicated things in a simpler way? So Evolution is complicated, but the theory of evolution is a more simplified model of what is happening, right? It's a more ideal notion. And when I did physics, um, we always played around with this idea of ideal gases. So, of course, nothing is ideal in the natural world, but it's not ideal because of all of these conditional factors. If we distill these patterns of behavior down to its core, Right? We can have these gas laws, these ideal laws that describe gases and how they behave when they are indeed ideal. And they're not perfect because the world isn't ideal, but they genuinely have some way of grasping at general principles of how gases behave. So I know that if I heat up a gas, it will expand, perhaps not to the precise degree as the mathematics will work out to be, like you can jiggle that around with the conditions of the real world, but I know for a fact Right? If I heat up a gas, it will increase in volume, for instance. So it seems that seems quite promising. Right? It means that even if we understand everything to be subjective, there is a way of poking at the shadows on the wall and trying to determine some sort of real patterns that reflect genuine reality in the world. And of course, you know, people can, it's a whole other debate as to what you perceive to be real. A lot of people object to this. Well, that doesn't really count. Right? They say, okay, that's not real, real. <laughs> that's not the reality that I want. But let's give Dennett the benefit of that and say, okay, that's as good as it, as real gets, and we'll take that as reality. One of the major questions that might arise from this idea is that do these patterns genuinely reflect how reality as it is, or does it only reflect how we perceive 
that reality. So I'm thinking, for instance, right, if we observe a pattern, it makes sense. Okay, let's, that pattern generally reflects some feature of the natural world. But what if that pattern just reflects a feature of my perception of the natural world? What if I'm already filtering right, a bit of information in a patterned way? So, for instance, you take you know, a, a frame of a film, right, which is effectively just slits, right? There are gaps, right, which allow light to pass through. The light itself does not hold any pattern. It's the film. It is the way you frame, right, that casts these shadows on the wall, right? So in the same way, when we perceive something, light, right, is not perceived as it actually is. We only perceive a very sort of a limited amount of wavelengths, specifically the visible light range. And we perceive, oh, there's patterns to this, right? We come up with a lot of theories. We, you know, as an artist, you know about, I think there's something called like color theory, right? Um, and that's just taking like a cup, right? From an ocean and then making some claims about that particular cup. Say, oh, there's no fish <laughs> in the ocean. I've taken one sample, right? And so I get what he's saying. And the idea sounds very promising, but it doesn't exclude the possibility that the perception of patterns is itself subjectively biased in some sense, right? By raising up the film to the screen and allowing the light to pass through, I'm mistaking patterns in the light for genuine reflection of how the light behaves and not the images that I've already put on the film, right? If that makes sense. So the notion of reality here is still not very secure. Granted, it's still a more solid version, right? Granted, it is far more likely that this version is plausible than everything is mind-dependent or everything is a dream, right? This idea that all of this is some god's dream and then we're all, and when the god wakes up, the whole cycle begins again, right? Obviously, it, it seems much more likely than that, but it does ignore the very, very real uh, role that the mind plays in the recognition of patterns. It is the same issue that we have when we see Jesus on a piece of toast. <laughs> right? we're, as human beings, we're very good at spotting patterns, and that's very, very useful right? in terms of survival. Our psychology is very adaptable in that sense. We are very good at recognizing faces, but that also means we see patterns where they don't exist. We see faces where they don't exist, right? And that happens all the time because as human beings, we're very, very geared towards pattern recognition. It's one of our strengths. And it's difficult to determine as to where exactly do we draw the line, right? When do we say that these patterns are genuine patterns in the world? And when do we say that actually these patterns are just my ascriptions of patterns? I'm seeing patterns where there aren't really. This is similar to something we mentioned before with Hume, like the problem of induction. The problem with basing off knowledge on pattern recognition, on trying to ascribe the past to the present and future, which is essentially the whole fundamental principle of pattern recognition is that you have to spot something happening in the past, also happening in the present, and also happening in the future. Right? You see that it's, there's some form of repetition, um, is that you never really know, you're never really certain. Right? I can see events happening in sequence. I can't see causality. 
So by extension, I can see things happening similarly in sequence, but I can't see really patterns according to Hume. Now, that's a genuine concern. That's not to say that all science is thrown out the window. We still work with pattern recognition. We still work with induction. But there's a very real limitation to what we humans can do in terms of our ability to sift out reality from all of this information. Uh, in a sense, that is a genuine reflection of what is out there. Alternatively, if you take a different version of reality and you don't put such a strong constraint, this model is good enough in the sense that, okay, if we abandon the notion of reality in the sense that things have to be reflected as they actually are, and we adopt a notion of things appearing to us as accurately as possible or as coherently consistent with every other observation, or in science we like to say, does, there's no evidence that contradicts that observation. That's pretty real enough, right? That's good enough, scientifically speaking. I would say that most people, right, that is more in line with that notion of defense of common sense, right? We believe something to be a real pattern or real reflection, notwithstanding the recognition that someday that some other observation, some other pattern may prove us wrong. And that's, I would say, a balanced, sort of healthy, uh, way of looking at the world, of recognizing that the limitation. The danger is, of course, someone reading Dennett and saying, oh yeah, that's it, that's real. <laughs> this, I have found reality, <laughs> that there is some sort of graspable thing. Well, what do you sort of make of that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the idea of real patterns is very satisfying to me, obviously, mm -hmm. I brought it up. Yeah, the pattern recognition is one of the main functions of the brain, and also prediction shooting out projections of what may happen in the future and and below a second you know it kind of stitches together your your reality these pattern recognitions maybe to take it to a more artistic place there's a neuroscientist eric kandel who wrote a really interesting book on abstraction i'm just gonna riff off of it now you know he he says that when the when the brain confronts ambiguity it doesn't like that Right. If mm. we, if we look around, I'm never really confused about something in my perception. I have a concept for it. I know what I'm looking at in general. Right. Object recognition is very strong, or, or spatial recognition is very strong. But if I do see something that I can't recognize, that I can't immediately label, like an abstract image, what then happens? Well, I shift from bottom-up processing. Right, which most of our perceptions bottom up, we don't really take part in it. And now I have to actively think, it calls on top down processing. So I have to think, I have to go through my memories, mm -hmm. and I begin trying to answer what is this image? And that's when a lot of people will start seeing faces and things, or seeing mm -hmm. whatever inside of clouds they want an answer to it, what this thing is, mm -hmm. right? And that's. That's a good thing to know as an artist is you can exploit that to yeah. make the artwork more interesting by adding elements of ambiguity to it. It's a very powerful tool. I mean, I agree with you. There are patterns. There's a lot of cycles in nature that repeat, a lot of rhythms. Yeah, I will make a model of that pattern in my head, but someone else may have a more efficient model. 
And then I take on theirs, and it made me a more efficient model over there, and then someone has a big breakthrough idea of a bigger Mm -hmm. pattern. So there is an evolution of patterns, but we run on those patterns, right? Right. If we had to sift through just the raw data of sensation every day, our reality would be very inefficient. But patterns are information, and the more I think we know, maybe the lower the entropy of our reality right so these patterns these patterns have an element of noise in them the more noise there is the higher the entropy of that information and i think it's the same with a person when you're born you do have some functions but you don't really have any knowledge outside of your bio- biology and as you go out and learn you become more ordered we actually i think do the opposite well some of us do the opposite of what the physical world's doing we're actually lowering the entropy of our consciousness through Mm -hmm. these patterns through learning and so as i learn it becomes easier for me to learn and my reality becomes more and more ordered and efficient getting these patterns reducing the ambiguity of our life is really important but You know, most of our knowledge, most of our patterns are about cause and effect, Mm -hmm. right? I know if I do this, this will happen. If I know if I push this button on the iPhone, this will happen. But what happens in between? Most of human knowledge skips that whole thing of what happens in between, right? Mm -hmm. And when we try to answer what happens in between cause and effect, that's when we get absolutely lost, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's quite fascinating to propose this sort of idea. Maybe some listener will have some experience with people who have face blindness. Yeah. Because we're quite good at faces, and so we sort of take that ability for granted. But if you sort of have a person who is face blind, it's very fascinating to see what they see. So what it's like we make so faces, right? It's just so evidently obvious to us. Something is a face, we recognize a person. But to a person who is face blind, I imagine that they would have to do the sort of thing that you were mentioning, like the, the yeah. top-down sort of approach of trying to put these different weird blobs together, <laughs> like this eye thing and this nose thing, and then trying to attach some form of identity to that. And I think it's useful sort of to relate it perhaps to science and art as well, to have concepts when we're making sense of things to ourselves and to other people. When you're, you know, you're a teacher, you understand that it's... You know, when you're teaching or trying to explain a concept, it's, in, it's easier to put things into boxes. It's easier to put things in terms of patterns because we get that, we understand that those things are easier to convey. But I don't know if that's the case for you, but when we're trying to go for something new, we have to force ourselves to go, undergo some form of conceptual blindness because if we hold on to old concepts, then it sort of binds us mm-hmm. to old patterns. And precisely the whole point about discovery is to acknowledge or to wonder what possible other models may fit the evidence better. So something that's quite fascinating, you know, to bring up the scientific models again, is that the scientific models are inconsistent. We have very, very good models for explaining very, very specific bits of reality. But that would be fine, except they don't go well with one another. So our model for the very, very big don't fit very well with the very, very small. So we know, right, for instance, that it could be another breakthrough in Dennett's idea is that we know for a fact maybe that we don't know something, Mm -hmm. right? We know there's something missing because if we had it, it would at least be consistent. So we know we're definitely wrong 
about mm-hmm. something in the middle. We don't know precisely what, but that could be a reflection of some notion in reality, right? Perhaps that is as much knowledge as knowing something positive. You can have negative knowledge. So maybe I know, right? I may not be completely certain that this person crosses my sort of fire every Tuesday, but I know that. You know, there's only space for one person. I know that two people can't possibly be coming at the same time on Tuesday. I know that much. So maybe you have this Socratic notion of breaking down and starting from making sure about the things you don't know. Mm-hmm. You have sort of your more pragmatic. You know, we have the models to get going on with. We have those to sort of to work with. You know, we need the model relativity for GPS systems and for airplanes and things like that. But we know it's wrong. We know it doesn't mm-hmm. cover everything, but we don't need it to cover everything. We just need to cover the bits that regard GPS systems and <laughs> you know airline flights. But when it comes to epistemology or the intellectual discovery of how actually things are, it may not be right right to go for the simplest model. It may be right. We know this that sometimes reality is complicated. <laughs> that sometimes we have to pick the simplest version of the most complicated model. Precisely mm-hmm. when things don't match up, and that's I think that's quite nice that reality has provided this sort of self-checking system, because mm-hmm. if everything were to go well and everything were to be consistent, we wouldn't know, right, whether we should stop looking or not. <laughs> But at least we know, right, this isn't it. There's some sort of inconsistency in how we sort of go about things. Do you, do you have any students that are have suffered some from like conceptual or face blindness that sort of thing? No, I don't have any students that that have that, but there was a famous artist who had it. His name was uh, Chuck Close, and he was a photorealist who did giant portraits. So he had face blindness, and so these giant eight-foot-tall drawings of faces, he would like put down every little thing, every little wrinkle, pore, whatever, and that was pretty much his whole artistic career was. Breaking down faces in all these different ways, so it's really interesting to to look at that. You know, the the, the face blind, the, the fusiform gyrus where you have the faces. It's funny. Um, you'll have it for other things, like a lot of men had it for sports cars, right? Um, also, colors are stored there too. Right. You know, and and important things that that you that are very intricate, you will store them there. But um. I have been around people with like synesthesia, mm-hmm. or um, different types of color blindnesses, and and you see there is a huge variety in in how people perceive and how people process information, mm-hmm. uh, especially people on the spectrum of synesthesia. It's bottom up processing. They can't help it. If they see numbers as as colors, right? If mm-hmm. if every three in your perception is yellow. Like she would look down the street at a street sign, and she couldn't see the number, but she could see the colors of the number and know what street it was. Right. So it wasn't even she wasn't even aware of it, but it was bottom-up processing, right? It had to do.、Uh, she was wired. Also, people, if the vision is framed, it'll start to make a sound. And so it was interesting. I showed her like a painting, and she's like. This sounds a lot like this other artist's painting. I was、mm-hmm. like, I was looking at their painting,、yeah. right? So she instantly hears the composition of the painting, 
and can relate it to other ones. But that's interesting, this, this diversity of how you're wired uh, will allow you different advantages to process data, you know? So everyone's doing that in a slightly different way. It's just obvious in these more extreme examples, right? And in a sense, it's hard to say that their notion or their way of processing information is any less real. Yeah. Because to them, that is genuinely how, like, to them, how they perceive this sort of thing is through color, through is through sound. Who's to say that our way of perceiving these things <laughs> through, you know, through visual sort of concepts yeah. is any way more accurate at reflecting what's actually going on there? Yeah, I mean, if she painted, she'd be really good at composition. Like, I wish I could hear, maybe not all the time for her, it was kind of a burden to hear vision all the time. You know, like some of the paintings I had were so noisy that mm -hmm. she couldn't be around it. Yeah. If I could turn that on and hear the composition, how everything's working together, that that would improve my painting ability so much. Yeah. Right. It might reveal something to you that you didn't know, like qualities. Yeah. Turns out that painting as a medium has an audio sort of yeah. sort of effect as a quality. That actually raises a very good point, is that perhaps we're missing. It's not that our concepts are sort of tied in into our neurological network, but it's yeah. also we might be missing bits that we weren't aware of. Like there are some Absolutely. other aspects of how we perceive the world that if we, were had, if we had access, that we would be seeing more patterns, not less. That we'd see more connections. I think that's what gets people interested in altered states of consciousness you know, uh, doing drugs or whatever, but neuroscientifically, when you're younger, when you're a teenager, you have massive amounts of neurons mm -hmm. so that you can try out all these different pathways to see what's the most efficient one for your environment. So when we look at teenagers and they're just a mess and they're trying out all the things, that's actually their biology. They have thousands and thousands of, of neurons that by the time you're 25, get pruned away to the most successful pathways, and then you're an adult and you're kind of stuck in your ways. Maybe that doesn't happen to some people. What if pruning, if there are people who have pruning in like their 40s, you know, they have mm -hmm. all those, we don't know, we're not scanning everybody's brain. It's fun to think, you know, what are your specific weird yeah. neurology, you know? Yeah. What is unique to you? I remember when I was really young, like in kindergarten and they had all the colored charts up on the wall, I could not see yellow. I couldn't see it. It looked white, right? But then yeah. over time, I could see it, mm -hmm. you know? Like, what was that? Like, I have a distinct <laughs> memory. I could not tell the difference between yellow and white. Right. But by the, by the, you know, the first grade, I could tell, did I learn yellow? Am I not actually able to perceive yellow, but I learned yellow, and now I yeah. perceive it? I don't know. I don't know what that means for me, but I remember that. <laughs> this actually is sort of, like, some people have tried to manipulate this idea of neuroplasticity, right? So there was mm -hmm. a very famous, I can't remember which chess player, but he was, he trained three daughters. Okay. And they were all brilliant at chess, because he's sort of significant if you'd like wired their brains for chess from a very young age and sort of all three of them became sort of very very like fantastic sort of chess players and of course you have similar disciplines in sport like the williams sisters for instance 
were sort of trained at a young age to play tennis. Mm. And so their brains are able to be wired in such a way, to be developed in such a way that they're more sort of sensitive to pattern recognitions in a specific field, <laughs> right, for yeah. sport. That sort of means, I think, to take a wider context, that it's possible to do this with anything. It also, to relate it back to sort of the general theme of the podcast, it is possible to genuinely be at no fault of your own, to be neurologically untrained or unfit for critical thinking for a time. Mm. But it also means that it is, it is trainable. You can at any point decide, okay, I'm going to practice, right, in, in the same way you practice chess or practice sort of tennis and be able to develop your ability to see things more critically, that you mm. develop your ability to be more aware of, hang on, this isn't sort of sound very correct. And a lot of therapy works in the same way. I remember hearing someone sort of quitting, sort of eating, uh, I think it's like edibles. Mm -hmm. So they were using it as like sort of a sleep assistant thing. And then one evening sort of, they were about to go to sleep and they had run out. And their immediate thought was to go, oh no, I can't sleep tonight. And that sort of, that self-awareness of that thought made them realize that there's something wrong. I should probably stop. Like <laughs> I'm emotionally becoming a dependent on this for sleep. Yeah. And so, I think it means that, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't have that sort of voice in my head to tell me to stop thinking or be biased in a certain way. But it is trainable. It seems that the mind is a very, very adaptable, you know, neuroplastic thing that is moldable for different, different, for different functions. So mm -hmm. you have, I'm sure that it's possible to think more creatively if you work at it. It's possible to think more artistically if you work at it. Yeah, there's, there's been a kind of revolutionary thought in psychology that neural pruning thing I told you about, say my parents' generation, they believe that 25, you stop maturing, that that's who you're gonna be for life. Lovinger, she put out this, this paper called The Nine Stages of Ego Development, and it's been revolutionary because she claims that through your entire life, you can continue maturing and changing, right? I totally believe that. I think anyone could take on something. It may be more difficult, the older you get, the more reinforced those neuro circuits are. It may be right. hard to break those down and make new ones, but, and I also think IHQ is changeable. I, I think I have evidence for that in my direct experience. I think I was very dumb. <laughs> I think I was very, very dumb. And then I started reading a lot and I started playing chess. And I think those things raised my IQ and, and made me mm better at thinking because I was yeah. officially dumb you know <laughs> I think this is definitely sort of true in the sense that I think it is also true that a lot of these things are biological like we're yeah. dealt a set of biological cards but it is yeah. also simultaneously true that it's possible to work at certain yeah. things of course it's impossible like we have a limited amount of time and energy and we can't work at everything mm -hmm. but it is possible to choose something if you think it valuable enough to sort of develop and to work at. Mm -hmm. And I think critical thinking is one of those skills that is good for anything. It's a good mm -hmm. skill to have regardless <laughs> of anything you decide to do. I wonder, of course, the potential of changing sort of your neural networking is always there. But of mm -hmm. course, it, it's also obvious as to why it becomes more difficult the older you get. I think I've heard yeah. someone say that a person's basic value 
values. So their moral values, their value on how they see the universe or the world and how they see their own lives is basically formed by the time of their sort of mid-20s. Mm -hmm. right? Because at that point, you're expected to be a responsible adult. You're, you're expected mm -hmm. to have all of these responsibilities. And if you haven't had your you know, things together by that point, you're considered to be a failure, you're considered to be behind, you're considered to be a layabout. And so it's very, very advantageous to think that you have a grip on things by mm -hmm. the time of your mid-20s. And it's very hard to move away from those conceptions because by that point you've built a life around those ideas, right? You formed, you know, your basic your career, your income, the way you sort of socialize your social network, it's all based on those fundamental values that you've mm -hmm. built a house upon. And to decide to break that apart and reevaluate is a very, very, very difficult thing mm -hmm. to do. Because essentially, you're having what people call like an existential crisis, which is why, mm -hmm. and then it, weirdly enough, it becomes easier when you, once you get to you know your 40s, which is where you have your midlife crisis, it becomes easier to rebuild again because at that point, responsibility is sort of off, right? You've sort of reached a point where you know I'm okay with none of this, these things being, or I'm okay with changing things, buying a weird car, changing my hairstyle, and so it becomes sort of a, a new sort of time to be able to sort of reevaluate. And then people often say that the older you get, the more childlike you become, right? Like really, really old. Once mm -hmm. you get to your 60s and 70s, you become like a kid again. Because like, hey, you don't give a damn about anything, right? You have yeah. no, you effectively, <laughs> you don't owe anybody anything. You don't have, you don't care about social reputation or responsibilities anymore. You can, you know, experiment with things again. Of course, it's a trade-off. It means that you have, at that point, less energy to develop those sort of mm -hmm. things. But it also goes to show that it seems that there's no such thing as too late. Mm-hmm. You always have very practical barriers as to why you may not want to mm -hmm. want to reevaluate and give yourself an existential crisis, <laughs> right? Or to go down a nihilistic path, right? That could be a very dark thing to do. But yeah. it means that you can always pick it up whenever you like. I always, I also, I also saw something recently about uh, the notion of geniuses and the notion of when sort of these geniuses make their most important discoveries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for instance, John Nash wrote his uh, later Nobel Prize winning paper when he was 21. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a lot of these geniuses make their, you know, most greatest contributions in their early 20s. Yeah, definitely. And that's horrifying <laughs> to definitely. me because I'm already there. I'm all of past it. I haven't made anything. And it seems <laughs> like it makes sense because in your early 20s, you're the most creative, you're, yeah. you don't have, you're not tied down to any conceptual sort of baggage yet, you're allowed to play, you're allowed to experiment, nobody expects you to make these monumental discoveries, and precisely that is when you're most able to question and to make these breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. But then again, there's always these outliers, there's always these people doing it in their 40s, there's always these people yeah. doing it much later in life, and so it seems that these patterns are in one way a reflection of how things can, an aspect of how things can be, but not necessarily. Again, mm -hmm. there seems to be some leeway as for most things, for things to change and be different. So I, I have little experiments that I do myself. I'm, I'm always messing with my mind, which 
I think most people don't like to do that. They don't want to be uncomfortable. But I understand that you can fall into a programming. That you you can become automated and just reactive, right? So here is my experiments that I conduct every now and then to just keep on edge. You know, to keep to keep to keep learning. So what I'll do is I'll become aware of my current patterns where I feel comfortable and I will do the exact opposite, right? I'll wake up at a different time. I'll take a different route to work. Maybe I'll skip the meal that I usually have or even it can get really strange. I'll pay attention to things that don't make sense. Instead of looking at things, I'll look at the shadows of things, right? Or maybe instead of thinking all day, I'll pretend I'll have some other sense. Like, I'll just follow intuitions all day. If I feel like going down this path or feel like going over here or whatever. Or, you know, I'll play, I'll play these games. And what's fun about that is something new always happens. I become aware of something that was right there the whole time, but I was never in that state. Like, when I do things like that, I'll discover, like, just around the block that I never walked to. There's a really great restaurant there just because mm -hmm. I walked the other way or, or, you know, I'll discover a new way of thinking, you know? I think if you play those games, like, pay attention to different things, what happens if the entire day you look at someone's feet? Mm -hmm. Or what happens the, the day if you wear a bright red hat? Right. Or what if you do something that you're scared to do? Like, you know, what if you have to go up and talk to people Every, all day long, right? Just mm -hmm. walk up and talk to random people. Uh, those are fun for me. Or even I did one where um, my girlfriend at the time, I was like, let's pretend we'll, we'll walk together. We'll get on the train, but we don't know each other, right? Mm -hmm. And let's pretend that we're absolute strangers. And, and we did that, and it was really weird. It was really disorienting. I began believing that we didn't actually know each other mm -hmm. and that we were just talking. And... Actually, the conversations we had, I learned things about her that I'd never known before. Because mm -hmm. I was pretending not to know her, we found the routines, and now I was getting to know her again. But it's fun, it's, it's, it's scary, it's uncomfortable, but you end up gaining something new, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, I think that's a good place to sort of end it, right? It's okay. like, then it says, right, there might be real patterns. And our mm. advice is to say, break those patterns. <laughs> <laughs> Try and break some. Yeah. Yeah. There are real patterns. You have them. Maybe you've fell into a rut, you know, with these same circuits. Break them. Continue continue challenging your patterns and trying to find new ones or synthesizing them or stumbling into one you never even saw before, right? Well, I think I'll go back to bed now. <laughs> 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 Maybe... Maybe make some breakfast, and uh, I hope you have fun out there in, in Hong Kong. All right, so thank you to everyone who listened today. Thank you to everyone who is joining the Patreon and supporting us, allowing us to, to make this meaningful content. If you'd like to study with me, you can go to greenatelier.art and sign up for lessons. And remember to be critically creative. <laughs>